Hey Logo Geeks, Ian Padgett here and this week I'm joined by two guests, Jen and Ken Visocchio-Grady to discuss research for design. But before we dive into that, I want to give a big shout out to FreshBooks who have kindly sponsored this season of the Logo Geek podcast. As designers, time is our most precious tool, uh, so we really want to be spending as much time as we can working on logos rather than spending that time on things like admin. And that's where FreshBooks can help. It's a cloud-based accounting software where you can create branded invoices in as little as 30 seconds. And also your client can pay directly from those invoices too, meaning that you'll also get paid faster. It's a beautifully designed platform that's well worth checking out for yourself. And you can do that with a free 30-day trial. To claim that, just head to freshbooks.com forward slash logogeek and enter logogeek in the how did you hear about us section. So on this week's episode, we're going to be talking about research. And I believe that's one of the most important steps of the design process because it allows you to really understand the challenges faced. And if you understand that, you create a solution that will succeed. On top of that, you can also present your solutions based on your research and understanding. And because of that, you'll get your designs approved much faster, if not right away. And you'll also gain a lot more respect in the process too. I'm always searching for ways to improve and perfect my own process. So when I seen a book recommendation in the Logo Geek community uh, for a book on research methods, I didn't hesitate to get myself a copy. And that book was a designer's research manual written by Jen and Ken Visocchio-Grady. And since I love the book so much, I invited them to join me on the podcast. Jen is a professor at Cleveland State University and Ken is a professor and graduate coordinator at Kent State University. So as you can tell, they both really know their stuff. Together, they co-authored three books on design, including Design Currency, The Information Designer's Handbook, and as already mentioned, A Designer's Research Manual too. If you don't already make research part of your design process, this episode will be invaluable for you. Uh, But even if you are a seasoned designer already doing research, I'm certain that you'll gain some insight from this episode too. So let's jump straight into this. Here is the interview with Jen and Ken Visocchio-Grady. Research is one of those topics that I've always had a lot of interest in as a graphic designer. And um, I mean, there, there is a lot of information out there that you can find that goes into different processes and so on. But I, I recently picked up a copy of your book, A Designer's Research Manual, and it, it runs through so many different processes and techni- techniques. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of things in there that I, I wasn't aware of. And I thought it was an absolutely fantastic book and oh, thank because you. the the audience will be graphic designers, logo designers, people working on branding, uh, graphic design essentially, I thought it'd be a really good topic to dive into. Would you be able to tell us a little bit more about the book specifically? So the book that's out currently is the second edition of a designer's research manual. Um, Jen and I were 
asked to write the original edition in around 2005, I think. And then there had been so much that had changed in the research space in design that we um, worked with our publisher to update the book and do a second edition. And in that second edition, I feel like we really changed the structure of the content. Uh, We added a lot more new content, updated a lot of the case studies that were in the book previously. Um, And what we're always trying to do is create something that an everyday design practitioner can integrate into their practice. We try to make the concepts as approachable and as scalable as possible. And to give a little bit of history on the first edition, um, when the book came out, there weren't a lot of uh, practical quick application for professional conversations in design research as a space, a lot of real academic conversations. And what we found is that um, we were running a small design studio and we had our own version of research practices at the time. Um, But everyone we knew had a small studio or worked in a larger agency or in-house and they all had their own methods um, and their methods were really pretty overlapping. There was a commonality to all of it, but a lot of people weren't comfortable talking to us because they felt like they were proprietary processes. So the first edition 10 some years ago, 12, I guess now, um, was really about trying to get the design community to tell the story of how they researched and then make it accessible for anyone who wanted to learn. In this next edition, I think there's a lot more in the space. I also think too, that one of the things that we're trying to do with, with both editions of the book, the first and the second edition, is just try to provide some common language about the ways that designers approach research. One of the things we found, you know, like Jen had mentioned, is that there was a lot of overlap in all of the discussions they were having with design practitioners about what they were doing, but they were all calling it something a little bit different. And we felt that for research to grow as a practice within design, that we needed to start establishing some baseline conversations or some some commonalities for how we're talking about it or discussing it. And I I think the other big difference for us um, between the first edition and the second edition is just how prevalent it's become as an embraced part of design practice now. Um, Now, both of our programs have in the second year of the undergraduate program, students are learning about these kinds of things so that they can incorporate them into their upper division undergraduate project work. I'm sorry, John. That's okay. I just, it it was one of those things that um, the industry was doing, but people weren't talking about as much. And I think now it's become a much more formalized part of a design education. Yeah. We, I even have alumni now that are, they have job titles like senior design research strategist, or they're uh, studying design research at a PhD level in um, business programs. And so it's, I think that there's a lot that has changed over the past decade. Yeah. I know even in the past like two or three years, there is a lot more conversation about strategy. And I I think because graphic designers are more aware of the advantages of working in a strategic way, you do need to do your research. And ironically, that's actually how your book came up in conversation because uh, within the uh, Logo Geek Facebook group, someone was asking for book recommendations on strategy and, and your book was actually one that came up, which is interesting because it's not directly about strategy, but research is such a fundamental part of that. You know, I'm going to give another plug to a colleague. Um, Design Strategist, um, I think, is another great book. Um, maybe after the conversation, I can provide a link to some of the resources that I use in my graduate class. 
Sure. So what I can do is with the uh, podcast, what I do is I create show notes as well. So if anyone is interested in that, I'll, I'll include uh, links to those in the uh, show notes for this episode. Perfect. And the title is The Strategic Designer. It's a great book in that space. Yes. Fantastic. I assume that's on Amazon because I'll find yes. an Amazon link and uh, people can go and find it there. Brilliant. That sounds really good. I'll have to go and check that one out myself. Um, I was going to say that, that research is one step of the process that some designers out there, even though I said a lot of people are working more strategically, research is one step that a lot of, a lot of graphic designers don't like to do, especially uh, students. I remember when I, <laughs> uh, when I was at college, I, I didn't particularly like that. I wanted to jump straight into all the creative stuff. So I was thinking for people in that camp that are listening, could you tell us a little bit more why research is such a critical part of the um, process? You know, it's funny. All of the things that you just stated are things that I face when I'm working with new graduate students in our program and I'm trying to retrain them. And I, I think that graphic designers are just very action oriented individuals. You know, we like to, we like to jump in with both feet. We'd like to get started. Every single project is a new opportunity to create something exciting and we get energized by that. And I think that the research component is in addition to all of those things. And I think it's just slowing down and making sure that you are asking the right questions and that you really understand the business context for your client, but you also understand the context of use for whatever it is that you're creating. And if you don't understand those things, you have there's, a, there's an opportunity there to run in the wrong direction. And so just slowing down and thinking like, okay, what do I know? What do I need to know? How am I going to find out that information that's missing? And how does it apply to this project and the project goals, I think is a really essential step. I would also say that with undergrads, they're maybe even less interested in wanting to learn this stuff. You know, they very much want to jump into the aesthetics and the maker style side of it. And so uh, one of the things that I tell students is that they're already doing this stuff. They just might not have the right terminology for it. Um, but if you look at all the various forms of visual exploration that most of us go through in a creative process, um, a lot of them have like beautiful sketchbooks and they're sort of doing some of this stuff instinctively. They just don't have a lot of language around framing it. Um, you know, even Google searches, right, to find out the basics about a topic that they're researching starts to become a component of a literature review, right? I would argue that sketching is just a, it's a way of ideating and prototyping and doing comparative analysis. You know, I think it's just... It's how we talk about those things that I think is, it goes back to, you know, the statement that we had made before about trying to provide a common language for the methodologies that designers engage in. I mean, I think that sketching is a part of research. Um, I just think that there are, depending on the size and scope and budget and timeline of the projects that you're working on, there might be some other things you can engage with to really help you frame the problem. I, I joke around with my students, but my dad is a business guy, right? And he's he's got a chief financial officer background. And so I say to them, hey, imagine if I say to my dad, I'm going to sketch something now. Like, how seriously does he take me? It's very much internal language to our profession. 
uh, more to the creative field. But if I say I'm going to do some strategic visual exploration, all of a sudden that sounds like something you want to pay me for. And so to me, part of uh, the design research question is just sharing some common language with our peers in other fields. Mm, The way that I've always seen it is that the research allows you to truly understand the problem that you're trying to solve. And if you don't understand the problem, you will fail. It's, it's, it's inevitable Absolutely. that you will fail if you don't understand and, um, you know, doing your research, doing your, your, all the background conversations that go into any uh, graphic design and just properly understanding it. If you know the challenges that you're facing, you can create a solution and then you can present all of the work based on the, the, the research that you've done. Yeah. And I think in some ways too, you know, it's, it's understanding, it's understanding the problem. It's understanding like the, it's understanding the communication problem, the business problem, the audience, the um, broader market that your client's engaged in. Um, But I also think that research is also about mitigating perceptions of risk on the client side. You know, going back to what Jenna just said, the anecdote about her dad, that when we can walk a client through the research methodology that led us to our intuitive design solutions, it, it helps mitigate those perceptions of risk because there is no guarantee that the work is going to solve the problem. But if we do our due diligence and research, there is, we're hedging our bets. You know, we're, 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 we're making sure that we're doing our due diligence to really understand what their needs are and what the needs of their audience are and who are the competitors in their space and how do we help them identify and differentiate and so I think it's really, it's really essential. Yeah, it, it really is. And I think you've done a, an amazing job of explaining the importance of uh, research. Uh, now, I, I know that the book covers a, a wide range of different research strategies and tactics, and it's relevant to all, all areas of graphic design, uh, from, lo- from logo design through to branding and web design. Um, there's loads of things that it's relevant to, uh, but because this podcast is about logo design, would you mind uh, talking through some of the tactics and approaches from the book that are relevant to logo design? Uh, sure. I, I think um, you and I had a little back and forth with email before we got started. And I think you're yeah. dead on with m- many of the things that we would prescribe to somebody if they were charting a path for researching a new logo. Um, everything, I think every design project tends to start with the communications audit of the client. What are they talking about internally? How do they talk about themselves? Um, and then who their competitors are. So an external evaluation of what their market segment is. And in, in some of that is a literature review too, right? You're just doing a broader review. Um, so many of our students go right to Googling, right? Um, but that's a totally legit way to get started on it. It's just how deep you can dig into those things. And I think that um, those areas together give you a nice broad idea of um, the, the market space and what the need is for this new product or revision. Sorry, with with the communication audit, I've never actually done anything that in depth personally, because a lot of my personal projects have been uh, relatively low budget. So in terms of generating an audit like that, the way I've literally done it is just through a questionnaire and gathering together some fairly high level information. What ways are there for creating 
something like a communication audit because an audit sounds very in-depth and something yeah. that could potentially take months to put together how would you go about creating something like that so i, I think let's let's take a step back i think that sure. when we're talking about research i think the most important thing for all of us to understand is that how long we engage in the research process is relative to project scale project scope yeah. budget and timeline right so if we're worried if you're working on a project that is a relatively low budget project, that's just some quick identity work. I think it's totally, totally fair to just engage in some simple questionnaires or a simple interview and to ask your client like, hey, can you just provide me with any you know, external communication tools that you guys are using that I don't have access to online? I'm just trying to get a better sense of who you guys are as an organization. And then ask them, you know, who are your biggest competitors in this market? You know, and, you know, for you to go through that and to understand it and to, to dig through it and, and get a sense of who the company is, who they're competing against and what their unique story is, I think is totally valid. Yeah. Um, because all of these things, you know, it's a communication audit for a really large scale project could take months. Yeah. But yeah. if it's if it's a if it's a quick project and it's you know, we have to we have to engage in methodologies that are, are relative to our budget. Um, one of the things that we included in uh, a designer's research manual um, in the second edition was a little information uh, from uh, a company in Atlanta uh, called Matchstick Creative, um, specifically a guy named Blake Howard. And they do this, this really interesting thing when they ever engage in any kind of identity work um, where they'll take a look at all of the companies that are competing in a space and they'll audit the color use of all of the different marks and logos uh, within that space. They'll do an audit of the basic shapes. They'll do the, an audit of the basic typefaces that are being used. And they create like a visual matrix of these things, just trying to understand like what's already being done, what's appropriate, what's inappropriate, what's totally way off base. And you know, how do we create something that helps identify and differentiate our client against these other marks? And I think that that's a, a way that designers can engage in this idea of a communications audit or some competitor profiling that is both quick to do, easy to understand, and allows them to really get a broad picture of what's happening in that space. And I think it's a, it's a brilliant technique. Yeah, I like I like how quick and easy it could be or how intense it could be depending on the scale and the scope of the project. And I also think it's it was always helpful to us to ask lots of questions. It's one of the things that I keep pushing in my students is, um, you know, if you could interview someone at that company, maybe you're working with sales staff and you want to know what they really do when they go like close a deal for the company, what kind of marketing materials are literally helping them and what do they have when they don't ever pull out at all? You know, is everything online for them now? Is that business card really essential? Like what is it that that they're using and it would help you understand better how that logo has to function. I think logos are a really unique thing because they are so scalable and they're seen in so many different ways. And so understanding um, the primary vehicles that the people at the company are going to use would be a helpful thing. And, and that to me is part of that communication audit. It may be just sitting down with some of the key players and saying, show me the stuff you use to get your job done. 
You know, in every industry, like if you're designing for a coffee shop, that would be very different than if you were designing um, a financial product for a, a small corporation. And so I, I think asking good questions and scaling it down instinctively to the size and the scope of the project are of most importance. Yeah. I'm just wondering when we use the term audit, what what is it that a lot of people are actually doing? Because I mean, from a freelancer point of view, I, I don't compile any information. I just put it together for myself. For example, if I am looking at the current communication or competitors, for example, I might just do a quick Google search, find the competitors, take screenshots and place it into a big um, document. Is there any special way that people are presenting that information to the client or do you, do you need to present that audit to the client? Well, I, I think that whenever you can share your research with your client, I think it helps. Again, it, it mitigates perceptions of risk, and I think it helps validate your creative directions, right? And so I think that that is something that designers are universally challenged by, um, yeah. you know, where, where clients are second-guessing the decisions that the designers are making. And I think that the design-client relationship is is kind of a strange one in that, you know, we're, we're, we are paid based off of our previous experiences and or portfolio, but our clients may not really have, it, it may be the first time that they're working with us and we're creating something new. Like our job is to create something that doesn't exist. Businesses don't like risk, right? And so I think that being able to take the information that you're gathering, um, even in the ways that you know we just discussed and being able to present that in a simple creative brief so that the client understands the direction that you're going in and why you're going in that direction. I, I think it's really helpful. Um, you know, when I'm teaching graduate classes at Kent State, you know, we, again, we're working on projects that are, are much bigger in, in scope um, and they're a lot less framed. But usually before we start designing, we put together what we call a design research summary report where it walks through, you know, what the problem is, um, what were the questions that we had or the assumptions that we had about the project? What methods of research did we engage in? What did we find from that? And then how does that, how did that lead us to our creative brief, which is then going to outline the creative work that we do? Um, again, I, I think a lot of the stuff is about scale. I think that if you're an individual sole proprietor designer that is working on um, small projects for small clients and your turnaround time is quick, I think that this, all this needs to be is a, like a, a one-page document that outlines your thinking that provides maybe some visuals that you found and why you went the direction that you went in. I, I think too that you can think of it like um, an executive summary of your research for the client and that it's a great way of getting buy-in and interaction with that client before you're going to present them with what the marks actually look like. And so it kind of gets you talking more and it gets you on the same page about some of the ideas that you've got or the things you've gleaned from the research so that when you're talking about the marks that you make down the road, you can kind of call back to it. And I think sometimes um, we, we all forget about our talents. Um, it's interesting to me whenever we work with somebody outside of the design universe you know, even a simple report, right? We were just working with architects and we would give them a presentation of the kinds of details we wanted on the inside of the house. And they would ooh and ah about the reports we put together to give to them. And, you know, it's, it's like my job to design paperwork or multi-page or a website kind of thing. And so I, I can do that pretty well. Um, and so I think if you, as a sole proprietor, for example, um, you know, one weekend when you had a little bit of spare time, came up with a template for how you were going to present research summary, you can go to it again and again 
and different clients and different kinds of businesses are going to require different kinds of research. I mean, come on, we're designers. We can take really dry information and make it really sexy. Yeah. You know, that's, yeah. that's one of the things that we do. So I think that there are ways that you can kind of graphically cook your own books in your favor um, to help get buy-in from your clients. Yeah, that's very true. Um, so to expand on that, at what stage would you present the research? Would you run through it whilst you present your solutions or would you do it as a separate exercise? Again, I think that depends on scale, right? Or, sure. or scope of work. Um, you know, one of the things that Jen and I did when we were in professional practice is that we we caught on really quick that when we Provided a client multiple options, they were always going to pick the worst one. It's uncanny. And, it, yeah. and, it, it, when it's, and there's, there is, there's a logic to this, right? I mean, clients didn't go to design school, so they don't really know what they're looking at. And they're going to have a tendency to pick the worst solution because it is all, usually the safest solution. And they're, again, mitigating perceptions of risk by picking something that looks familiar or feels familiar, right? And so we stopped doing that. And what we started doing was putting together uh, presentations of our research and then getting buy-in on that and then diving into creative and only showing one option and then arguing why that option met or lined up with the research that we found. And then it, it all of a sudden made things a little bit easier. I mean, we would have multiple iterations of a project internally, but we, we stopped showing them to clients after a while because they just didn't know what they were looking at. Or we narrowed them down significantly to control a little bit for the pick the worst one effect. Um, I think when you what you're asking is like, at what point in the project do you do it? Does it have to be a secondary meeting? I don't think it does. I think it could be the kind of thing that you could say, hey, like, let's get set up a phone call. I'm going to email you something, but I'd like to walk you through it. Um, I think it's probably safer to have some interaction. To me, part of that research summary is that you're presenting it, right? It's another case where the designer is the expert and they're really talking about what they've found. And the designer is the advocate for good work. Yep. It, it helps. I, I think it helps present a kind of commitment to understanding the problem like you spoke of earlier. Yeah. And I think, too, that when you when you are able to present re that research and you're able to understand your client's space, I think that it makes them feel more comfortable letting you do the work that they hired you to do. I, I think it shows, um, like Jen said, I think it shows a commitment to them. And it, I think it helps reframe you as a vendor to something that's more like a strategic partner. I, I also think um, it helps the client maybe get out of their own headspace because we all come to things with preconceived notions. And so, you know, we had a really a funny client experience early in our uh, practitioner careers where we were designing logos for um, doctors and the doctors um, all drove like fancy cars. They pulled up outside of our office in like a series of seven sports cars to come to this meeting. Yeah, they were the, uh, they were the, the, uh... They worked for a local sports team and they all had championship rings. It was, it was kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, it was this intimidating experience as an audience anyway. And then we're showing them medical marks, you know, for this logo for their business. And all they see in it is fancy car logos. You know, it was just like where these guys were in, in their headspace. And so I think in that case, we would have had better luck talking to them about who their clients were and who was coming to them and what those people were thinking about, because it really didn't matter if it looked like their Ferrari or whatever other fancy. You know, part. what's funny is that, you know, Jen sharing that story. And I think that was one of the first meetings that we had where we're like, you know, I think we need to show the client 
less visuals and more research because, you know, they, they were overwhelmed by everything that they saw. And then they just didn't know how to make a decision. And if we could walk them through our logic and our process, we could have narrowed this down significantly. We, yeah. just, we just wanted so badly as young designers to impress them with the amount of work that we were doing for you know, the, the, the money they were paying us. And it muddied the process quite a bit. Yeah, it created an information overload for sure. But the good end of that story is someday we made them a logo and then we got to go to the grand opening of their new facility and they cut our logo out of a block of ice and they had shrimp oh, around wow. it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <that was amazing. laughs> but this was before anyone had like a camera on their phone all the time. And so right. I don't have a picture oh, of that. Uh, uh, shame. <laughs> it was so big. Yeah. <laughs> so many shrimp. <laughs> I just want to take a short break to thank FreshBooks who has sponsored this season of the podcast. As creators, we like to spend our time creating clever ideas that give value to our clients. But a lot of us spend way too much time running our business, doing things like creating invoices, chasing payments and logging all of our expenses. And that's actually where FreshBooks can help. It's an accounting software designed specifically for creative professionals like you that's so easy to use, you'll save hours each week on all of the time-consuming admin that you're doing. And that means that you have more time to focus on designing logos and brand identities. Time-saving features in FreshBooks includes creating and sending branded invoices, in about 30 seconds. You can set up credit card payments right from your invoices, meaning that your clients can pay faster. And when tax time rolls around, you'll also be able to export tidy reports for expenses, invoice details, and sales tax to make working with an accountant really simple. Right now, I'm offering listeners of the Logo Geek podcast a free 30-day trial of FreshBooks, no credit card required. Just head to freshbooks.com forward slash logogeek and enter logogeek in the how did you hear about us section. Now let's get back to the interview. Now I know you mentioned then um, about presenting based on who the target audience is. I know that's typically one area that I personally face challenges with and I'm sure there's a lot of other people out there. I've worked with so many clients that say they target everybody, which we all right. know that's not the case. Right, 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 um, right, right. And I know as part of the research is researching who the target audience is. So right. I've, got, I've got a couple of questions around this. In in the instances where your client does come back and um, say they target everyone, what are you doing to firstly work out who they are? And then also... How are you then going about researching who these people are and what they might potentially need? So I, I think that, you know, one of the things that we learned really quickly is that it's it's always best to ask lots of questions. And so when they when clients will say something like, well, we're trying to our audience is everyone, we'll say, okay, well, you know, what does what does everyone look like? Um, where does everyone work? And just start to, to drill down. Another thing that we would try to do is that if we were working with a business-to-business uh, client um, or, or a business-to-consumer client, we would ask them if they could put us in touch with 
anybody on the client side that we could interview about the project so that we could start to get a better understanding of who those individuals were. Um, like in a business to business context, we'd say, well, you know, can we, can we interview or do you have a, do you have a trusted vendor that we could maybe talk about um, how great the relationship of working with you is? And then through that interview process, try to get a better understanding of who the audience was because they, they were putting us in touch with a member of the audience. Um, and then kind of extrapolate from there. I think it's always challenging. I also think that clients always have a tendency to think of, of audience in terms of demographic information, that they, they think of them as, you know, these specific quantifiable, you know, measurable things. And I think that that's, that's not always the best way to think about an audience member because it, it, it may show you who they are, but it, it doesn't really show us why, you know, mm-hmm. demographic information is really good at showing us you know, something that we can easily count, but it doesn't show us why why users are behaving the way that they are. We're always trying to get people to ask questions um, to help give us insight on the motivations behind behaviors. And that, that, you know, even if it's a purchasing decision, which a logo might be more connected to, um, or it's an association with a brand or the feeling of a brand, it's easier to reveal those things. I almost think that um, all designers should take a good journalism class on interviewing. And yes. that interviewing becomes a really, really meaningful part of being a yeah. designer. Even if you're just interviewing your client, like if you don't have time to go out and do some of the ethnographic research on the actual audience, yeah. I think asking better questions of the client is a yeah. good way to go. Yeah, unstructured, unstructured ethnographic interviews with clients are, are still a really valuable form of, of research, right? You know, you're not doing it with the audience, but you're doing it with the client. And then any kind of contextual inquiry that you can have so that you really understand the user in their context, I think is also really essential, you know? So asking like, well, where's the, where's the market going to be used and how is it going to be used? You know, what is the, you know, like Jen said, if it's, um, you know, if it's, it's primarily on a product, where's that product being sold? How do, how do users engage with that product? And what is that, what is the context in which they're going to, to, to touch on that? You know, is it going to be used in large environmental advertising? Is it, is it used, you know, how, how is it, how is it being used? That that's going to tell you a little bit more as to who the audience might be. Mm, very true. I, I know in the book as well, talking about target audience, you do have a section in there about creating personas. Uh, could you talk through how you go about doing something like that and the reason why? Yeah, I think personas are an interesting tool because you know I, I, sometimes I have a hard time understanding where I want to classify them. You know, because they're kind of a research. They're a research tactic, but they're also a research product. Yeah. You know, if you think of a persona, it, it's really just an archetype of a specific user or, um, you know, often I think projects have multiple personas where there's, there's audience segmentation. And so you create a persona for each member of the audience. And I, I think that they're products of, you know, other forms of primary and secondary research. And really what you're trying to do is you're just trying to paint as realistic of a picture as possible of who that key audience member is so that you're designing to them. I think it's easy without those tools in place to get a little lost in the design process. And when you have that persona as fabricated as possible or as realistic as possible, that you you have a better understanding of who you're designing to and you can make decisions of whether or not what you're doing is appropriate for that specific individual. 
I also think that it helps mitigate that my audience is everyone concept, right? right? So if we say, okay, well, who's everyone? And then we break it down into three potential everyone's, we may find that their buying habits or um, interests diverge quite a bit. And being able to show that as a part of your research summary before you then show the marks that you're making or the work that you're applying them to is really helpful to give context. Yeah, I think that it's... um... Yeah, I talked to my students a little bit. One of the things that we used to do in professional practice is we would do um, some client profiling and we'd almost go through a process of creating a persona for our client's business because a company is is an abstract thing, you know, but it, it has behaviors, it has history, it has culture. And when we could create, you know, a persona for that company, Talk that, about its personality. Talk if you about will. its personality, and you know, we would start to get a better sense of, you know, okay, is this appropriate for this company? And then we would think about, you know, their users and create personas for their users or their their audience. And then, okay, you know, is what we're creating for this company going to resonate with that individual? And it just gave us something to design against. I think there is a good chunk of what we do for a living in design that is styling, that's based off of um, aesthetics, pure look and feel. And those those styling elements are almost like dressing someone or like fashion design, right? And so if you can if you can do some research on the company itself and understand if you were walking down the street, would the company say, hey, or would it say hello very formally? That gives you a sense of what the typography should be like or um, what the color palette might be like. It doesn't have to be, you know, intense. Like I think your response to the word audit previously right. was like, oh, it sounds like a big, overwhelming, right. long yeah, time yeah. consuming word. It doesn't have to be. It doesn't, it, it doesn't be. always have to be. And I think, you know, as we all kind of play from client to client, on um, speaking in terms that that client will respond to. And some of our clients want big language, like visual exploration, and some of them are fine with sketching, right? Um, I I think, too, it informs how our design might speak to different audiences. Yeah, and I I think that, you know, going back to some of the the reasons why Jen and I wanted to write a designer's research manual or update it, is that we were also trying to get away from anything that was kind of dogmatic in its research approach. You know, I, I think that you know, we're trying to provide tools that designers can apply in big or small ways to their practice. And, and you know, hopefully, you know, that they are, are scalable to, to their needs. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really I really think they do. Because what I like about the book is the way that you put it together. You can uh, literally just use it as a reference book. You don't have to read it front to back. There's sections in there you can, you know, read through and think, oh, that's an interesting way. I wonder how I can apply that to you. Uh, this because like I said there's some things in the book that I've uh, not heard of and you know it's got me thinking maybe I could apply that to this that or the other to try and um, extract information in a different way. We have a lot of um, personas of our own people we know who are busy or students we've had in the past that we think about like how would this person use that information and whenever we're writing our goal is to make it very accessible. I'm just so aware of how busy all the designers we know, whether they're at a student level or a practitioner level, um, nobody's got a lot of spare time. And so if we can make you excited about trying something new um, and maybe enhancing your game through that, um, you can dive deeper with no problem if it's really resonating or working for you. You know, one of the things that I love um, working with my graduate students on are, are card sorts. And I find card sorts can be applied in lots of different ways on lots of different projects. And they can be, you know, 
quick and dirty things that are done with sticky notes, or they can be more formal and um, scored it using a tool like Qualtrics. But you know, card sorts where you give a a user or even your client a you know structure or a, a list of criteria, like you know uh, criteria on on each card, and have them organize them for the things that are the most important to the least important. You know, just so that you get an understand of their mental model of how they're thinking about the project or they're thinking about the things that they need to communicate, you know, in, in order of magnitude is really helpful. Right. And if you do a card sort like that with, you know, multiple touch points at your client's offices, you start to get a better understanding of how the entire executive team might be thinking about a problem. Um, you could do those with users and, and score them. And they're, they're, they're so easy to do. Um, Can I just and, interrupt uh, and ask you, because sure. I'm, I'm not familiar with the term card source. Can okay. you um, explain in a basic way what you mean by card source? Okay, so a card sort is a, is a research tactic where you give users, there, there are two kinds, there are open sorts, where um, say you go to a group of users and you say, hey, I want you to write down, um, here are five index cards, I want you to write five things that are important to you. Um, you know, in terms of your relationship with this organization and rank them um, being the first one being the most important and the bottom one being the least important, right? And you have them go through a process where they think about or they envision your or the design problem that you're trying to solve through their eyes, right? So you're, you're getting kind of a, uh, a, a user's perspective. And then you can do that with multiple users and score them. Or say, you know, you're given some design criteria and we're all kind of given, you know, when we're working with clients, we're all given multiple design criteria. You know, say a client says, well, we want the logo to feel, you know, we want it to feel fresh and we want it to feel, um, you know, technical and we want it to feel youthful. Okay, well, those are, those are three things. So, you know, let's ask, you know, let's write those all down on cards and ask the people that are involved with the organization if these are the criteria that we need to come across in this, you know, identity campaign, can you rank these words for me? What do you think is the most important one? What is the most important thing for us to convey? And then you can score them, right? And so then you're starting to get a, a bird's eye view of the things that are most important to the individuals working for that company or from the audience. What's great about it is it's a pretty quick ask. And so it's not taking up a lot of your time and it's not taking up a lot of their time. Um, potentially, in that you might get some interesting perspective. We've often found that the person who was um, hiring didn't necessarily represent the, the person who is decision-making. And so um, it may help you get a broader perspective on the job. It's also a really great tool for opening up those unstructured ethnographic interviews, because when you have the cards in front of your client or you have the cards in front of a user, it gives you something to talk about. And you can start to ask them, well, why did you rank that that way? Or that's really interesting. I've never thought of the problem that way. What was your logic behind this? And you're going to start to get deeper insights into the problem that I don't think you would have had otherwise. Yeah, you might come in with three predetermined words that you're asking them to sort. And then there's a fourth blank card that you right. could ask them, okay, is there you know an attribute we're missing about it? And what would the range of attributes be that you gathered that way? So you as the design researcher, it, it gives you an activity to engage with your client or your users with just to gain more information. 
and it's it can be it can be simple, it can be complex, it can be fast, it can be it can be done with multiple users. You can triangulate it and do it three different times to try to you know get those results. But it's it's something that you can really integrate into your work pretty easily. Mm, so when you say card, it could literally just be um, a word scribbled down on a, yep. a yep. sticky, sticky note. note or a piece mm-hmm. of paper or whatever. It, yep. it, it's just a a way of. Uh, you know, explaining a word. So it could even be uh, words written down on a board and ranked in, in order. Yeah. And there's, and there are, you know, when my graduate students are engaging in research, what they'll do is, you know, they'll go out and do these kinds of activities and they'll take pictures of what's happening. They'll have somebody that's taking notes about the questions that are being asked, but then they'll also take all of the different individual card sorts and rank them and score them and then put them into a tool like Qualtrics. And they can say, you know, 85% of people chose this card first, you know, um, 75% of people chose this card second, you know? And so it starts to give you some, some data to really think about when you're working with your, on your project. So just, um, sorry, just to expand on something you just said, uh, when you, when you use, when you say the term call tracks, what, what is that? Is that some kind of software? Uh, call tracks, oh, it's, a, it's software. I'm sorry. Right. Yeah, call tracks yeah, no is software. No worries. So what I'll do again, I'll put a link to that in the show notes so that people can look into it further. Sure. Now, I know we've, we've spoken about lots of different research areas. So we've gone into communication audit, target audience personas. We, we haven't covered um, competitor profiling. Could you talk through a little bit about how graphic designers should go about um, researching uh, a business's competitors? Well, I think that anytime, you know, one of the first questions that we ever asked in practice was, you know, who are your, who are your competitors, you know? Or who else is in your space? Yeah. And, and really try to understand who those companies were. We tried to understand them as best we could understand them um, from looking at, you know, open source material, right? But sometimes what we would do, and again, this is all depending on size and scope, is we try to reverse engineer a brand position statement and try to understand what were the visuals that they were using? How were they communicating to their audience? Um, there were even times where if we had a, a company, um, like a local company that was deemed, you know, one of our clients' competitors, we would think about, you know, their ad placement. Are they advertising, you know, on local radio channels? And then even call and ask to get media kits from those radio channels to try to understand who the demographics were that they were communicating to. Um, I, I think it's a lot like, creating a persona, you're just trying to reverse engineer who the competition is so that you can figure out, you know, what are the strengths and weaknesses? And then what is your own individual client story? And how can you use that to leverage against them, you know, to gain some sort of competitive advantage? And I I think that story is the really important part of what Ken just said there. Um, You know, there's, there's high end ad agency level competitive profiling and competitor research. And um, we're talking about secondary research that, you know, a solo practitioner or a small group with less resources might be able to engage in. And you're really just trying to get an understanding of where the person you're designing for, the service you're designing for fits into the broader marketplace um, to kind of uh, niche them out and help them be successful in their spot. I don't think it's about becoming you know, the biggest fish in their pond necessarily for most of our clients. But I think that, you know, especially with identity work, you know, we're, we're there to identify and differentiate. And if we don't, if we don't know who we're trying to differentiate from, how do we know we're successfully doing that? 
Yeah. I know personally, I would say that's always been the most critical thing for me. So I would always, as a bare minimum, just go and physically look at uh, all the direct competitors that they provided and see uh, what companies is this business being compared with. And then you can make sure that you are differentiating uh, from them, uh, you know, whether that's by color or with typography or, you know, general style, because the last thing you want to do is unintentionally make this business look close to a direct competitor. You don't want that. You want to look different. So that's always been one of the most fundamental things for me. Well, sometimes too, that even with color, you know, there may be colors that are being used for marks or identities in a specific you know, business market that are really appropriate, you know, like for example, like in healthcare, you know, you see a lot of blue and you see a lot of green, uh, because it speaks to health, right. It speaks to, um, you know, cleanliness or, you know, um, even, you know, like clean, sterile environments. And so, you know, you don't want to, you want to differentiate enough, yeah, but you yeah. also don't want to use something that is totally inappropriate you know, or foreign, you know? And so it's, it's really, it's, so I think that having that competitor analysis or doing those competitor profiling, you know, I think kind of gives us a a better sense of like, okay, well, you know, what's, what's being done and, you know, how can I differentiate, but also not be so out there that it doesn't look like it's in that market sector. Yeah. That's one of the, um, rules that I would say for a logo is that you want to differentiate but you want it to be appropriate you wouldn't want to just make something yellow just because no one else is using that color so I'm I'm glad that you actually said that because I I don't want people to go out there and simply differentiate by color because they can it's uh, not ideal a lot of the time you know, it's interesting for us as educators, our students come to us, um, you know, with undergraduate, they're coming like they're, they're 18 years old or between 18 and mid 20s. And so they don't have all the life experience that a professional that's in their 30s would have yet. And so sometimes the aesthetic decisions that they make don't feel appropriate for the scenarios that they're designing for yet, but they don't even know better yet, you know, and that's where I think research really helps a student. I think that as you get older and you sort of acquire knowledge along the way or even more emotional intelligence along the way, appropriate design is an easier thing to intuitively do. But I think that for a practitioner who's got a really broad client base, you can't know everything about every one of your clients' internal industries. And so um, some of these basic research tactics and strategies just help put you in a position to understand appropriateness that you might not have come to the project with. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because uh, it was about a year ago now. I went to uh, lunch with a friend of mine who's a school teacher. Um, so he's teaching uh, teenagers, and uh, we started talking about a, a potential project. And I and I literally started to paint a picture in my head of what the potential solution would be. I think it was for um, like a cafe or a, a restaurant or something. And I started to describe scents and paper stock and um you know different thoughts and feelings and and he then asked me Ian where's that come from and then I had to explain to him when I went to France like drove through (laughs) um you know (laughs) Europe and then I went to this little cafe and it, it you know all of this knowledge that's um come from just living you know just general day to day living was things that I could extract from 
Um, so I think that was a good point that you made because you, there's a lot of research that you can do, but as you get older, you can start to draw from just general day-to-day experiences. So as much as graphic designers can uh, spend learning about graphic design and you know sitting in front of their computer and doing the research online, it's really important to actually go outside and you know live life, basically. <laughs> I, I think that that's really important. There was a great... Um essay that was written by a guy named Dan, I think his name is Dan Saffer, um, at a company that just recently got purchased called Adaptive Adaptive Path. And he wrote this article or essay called Research is a Method, Not a Methodology. And he was making the argument, even though you know they they engage in a fair amount of, of user research and client research, that you didn't always have to do it. <laughs> that you know, every once in a while, you were working for a, working on a project that was, a, you know, a project for a client that you've worked in that space before. You understand who they are, you understand their business, you understand their market, and you have enough research done in that space already that you may not have to engage with it. That you may intuitively come up with a solution that totally works. And I also think that we as designers have to be open to that as well. And I, I make all of my students read that because I don't ever want them to get so buried in this. And these are just the all Jen and I want to do is provide tools and strategies and tips and tricks that 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 designers can use to help their business, you know. But it, it's we're not saying it always has to be. We're just saying, hey, maybe these will help. It can inform. It can't create on its own. Um, and I think that the things that we can do to be good observers as designers, you know, the things you remember from your vacation in France, for example, or the things that we can do to be good observers of users that just we see in an ethnographic way, we're walking down the street and kind of watching people use a product we're designing for or something like that. Um, that all, if you're a good observer on a daily basis, if you're the kind of person who keeps a sketchbook, if you have been observing and visually recording your whole career, it's that much easier to turn it into a more formalized thing when you go to research. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think the book that you guys have put together is a, a fantastic resource for running through what the different research methods and techniques are. And I think it's a really good guide. And, and um, in terms of this interview, I think it's, that's a perfect point to kind of wrap things up. So I want people to go out there and buy your book. I think it's great. So oh, thanks to say, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. It's been really great to chat with you. Well, thanks for having us. This is a lot of fun. And it's always delightful for us to know that it's resonating with someone. Oh, absolutely. And I hope, um, you know, just putting this podcast out, it will uh, reach a a few more people and help people through their research process from project to project. Thank you so much, much, Ian. If you've enjoyed this episode, let myself, Jen and Ken know that you've listened by giving us a shout out on social media. It's always great to hear from you guys. So please let me know, let Jen and Ken know that you've listened and that you've enjoyed this episode. If you want to learn more about Jen and Ken, head to their website, visockyogrady.com, where you'll find their books, articles, work, and more. Alternatively, check out the show notes for this episode, where you'll find links to all of that and any books or resources mentioned in this interview, as well as a full transcription too. To find the show notes, just head to logageek.uk forward slash 6.2. 
If you want to discuss the topics mentioned in this episode, or if you just want to chat about logo design, the best place to do that is in the Logo Geek community on Facebook that's completely free to join. If you want to be part of it, just head to logogeek.uk forward slash community. So that is it for this week, but I will see you the same time next week for another exciting episode of the Logo Geek Podcast.